the feeling of preciousness and that of honor that we each have this morning to gather is a great one indeed. Not only our regular membership here at Pippin, but the visitors who've come our way today for you were thankful. And we trust that we each can in fact be such that we can say it will have been good for us to have been here and that our worship will be pleasing, honorable, and acceptable before the eyes of our wonderful Heavenly Father. As we gather from time to time, it's certainly always powerful of note that even as we prayed a moment ago for the missionaries and the success of their efforts and labors, tonight Brother John Mayberry will be with us as he will in fact share with us some features about his recent trip to, uh, to the nation of India. And we look forward to hearing about all the things that they endured, but also the, the, for his record of stories and the things that took place as they shared the gospel and helped to prepare men to teach in that, in that part of the world. This morning, as we give some thought to a lesson entitled, The Certainty of God's Existence, you might have noted, as Brother Cale read for us in Acts the 14th chapter, that there is a very telling passage, verse 17 especially, as it so wonderfully addresses the thoughts that rest on the mind of many in our world today. I'd like to begin this lesson perhaps with these introductory thoughts that will move us toward the direction of those questions. The honor that's ours, of course, as Christians, today you and I perhaps have no real question about God's existence, but there are many in our world who do. In fact, when the question is asked, does God exist? There are a number of answers that the world will present. There are some who say, no, He doesn't exist. In fact, oddly enough, this very week, somewhat after I made the selection for the title of this lesson, admittedly, but there was a time earlier this week when a particular article in a magazine was such that a person was reasoning that God does not exist and he offered probably a dozen reasons why. In his mind, it was an open and shut case. There is no God. By the same token, there are others who say, well, there might be a God, I just don't know. For them, it's just a question of they are not in a position with enough evidence that they can confidently say that there is a God. There are yet others that say, I don't care. It doesn't matter whether there is or there isn't. But then there are those, perhaps like you and me, that absolutely affirm, and we would even defend it with our life, that there is a God. We are as certain of it as we are of anything else. As we give thought to a lesson this morning, how do we know? What might be some things that the Bible reveals to us that help us see in wonderful tones and terms the nature of God's existence? It might be fair to say that this kind of lesson could in fact stretch on for quite some time, but we're going to try in one brief lesson to look at this passage before us and to see what it says about this very point. To do that, might I invite us to begin this way. First of all, God exists. The Bible makes no defense of that point. It simply states it as an absolute matter of fact. From the opening verse in all the Bible, Genesis 1 verse 1, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. You'll notice in this opening verse... God's existence was absolutely asserted. It wasn't defended. It wasn't argued. It just simply states it as a matter of fact, God did this. In the opening verse of John chapter 1, fourth book in the New Testament, we read, 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Here we notice two among a whole host of other passages that state very simply, God is. When you think about the fact that God is, so many other verses remind us a bit about His nature. And I suspect that one of the issues that is of such great interest at this moment is His eternal character. Because if it's true that God is eternal, that means He has always been. And it means He will always be. Look at Isaiah 46, beginning in verse 9. There, the ancient prophet Isaiah simply made this statement, that it is God who can in fact state the future from the beginning because He has always been, declaring the end from the beginning. In Jeremiah 10, verse number 10, we see He is called the everlasting God. In Isaiah 57, verse 15, He is the one that inhabits eternity. Now you and I know in this flesh we're not always going to be like this. The point of death arrives. Christ is going to come back. We know that we shall not always be flesh and bone and blood. But we know that God has always been. He is eternal. Perhaps one final passage in that line would be Lamentations 5 verse 19 where there He is said to be the throne or reigning on the throne from everlasting to everlasting. Those thoughts seems to me submit to us that the Bible simply makes an absolute statement of God's existence. He is. And you and I as believers in the Word of God have great confidence in that fact that in fact there is a God. But as I mentioned a moment ago, despite that fact, there are many who say there is no God. There are many who say that there is simply not enough evidence to say that there is or there is not. In Psalm 14, verse 1, it says, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. So significant is that phrase, it is repeated verbatim in Psalm 53, verse 1. Let's note it again. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. At this point, you and I can say then that all that world of atheism that's about us and all that world of agnosticism and all the world that in fact questions or doubts or does not affirm that God exists, the Bible says they are acting foolishly. The Bible says that they have in fact chosen a course of action in which the Bible describes them as fools. As you notice near the bottom of that slide, we're going to turn to the 14th chapter of Acts. We will rehearse the opening part of that, but it does bring us to the lesson text. Paul and Barnabas were busy and active on the first missionary journey. As they arrived in the area of Derby and Lystra, Paul preached the word and there was an element of success. We notice in particular that Paul healed a crippled man. As a result of that, the people considered him a god. Those people were idolatrous and they thought that any man that could in fact heal somebody, surely this is a God in the flesh. As a result, the people there in those cities, they called Paul Mercury and Barnabas, they called Jupiter, they considered them gods. Paul and Barnabas quickly said, Gentlemen, we are but men. We are not gods. We have merely been privileged by God to proclaim the unsearchable riches of God's goodness. 
it is in the midst of that sermon that we find one of the things that Paul said was this one. Beginning in verse number 15. Sirs, why do you these things? We also are men of like passions with you, and preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness, in that he did good, and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness." I would invite you to notice the language that Paul used in verse 17. It is a very interesting usage of words, isn't it? And I've highlighted it for us to consider. It is specifically said that God left not Himself without witness. What does that phrase mean? It means, as you can see, that God has left evidences of His existence. He has provided for us evidences of His being. He left not Himself without witness. That phrase exactly means without witness or evidence. That means God has given us evidences of His being. He has provided evidences of His existence. It is not that He is unattested. In the final analysis, you'll notice Paul even went so far as to list some of these evidences. Verse 17 again says, He did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. For the remainder of the lesson this morning, I would invite you to give thought with me to these evidences of God's existence. How do we know that God exists? Paul in this verse said here are three ways we can know. Here are three elements, three attributes, three facts that highlight for us that there is a God. Among the things Paul listed was this one. He said in verse 17, He gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons. That very statement is a reference to the created order of God. When you and I open our eyes and look about us, the handiwork of God is everywhere around us. It takes a fool to ignore that. It takes a fool to turn a blind eye to it. It takes one who is unattuned to the nature of what this existence tells us. The created order, Paul said, is a mighty and powerful testimony of evidence to the fact that there is a God. Let's in fact build upon that thought by looking at some of these characteristics. We read it in verse 15, but it says that God made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein. The human family has been somewhat good at discovery. We discover things in the wilderness. We discover things underneath the surface of the ocean. We've even sent people to Mars or rather to the moon and to look at things up there. We like to be curious and to discover. Seems to me that should help us appreciate this. Where do we find any place like earth? Are there any other planets like this one? Are there any other places where life dwells and exists like it does on earth? Earth is called the blue planet because we have water, we have oceans, and that allows us to appreciate a sun nearby that gives us the needed energy. 
earth is an extremely special place. In fact, to this point, as astronomers have pointed their telescopes into the heavens, there's no place like earth. In fact, we can say there is no place even remotely close to being like earth. There is no place that has the attributes, features, and characteristics that this planet does. That, my friends, is not an accident. God fixed it that way. He made it that way. We know that because of the prophet's testimony in Isaiah 45, 18. That prophet of old said that God fashioned and prepared earth to be inhabited. All those other places we see in the heavens, they're either cold and lifeless or they're exceedingly hot and they would burn anything up. But earth is just right. We have a nice temperate temperature. We have water in all three phases, solid, liquid, and gas. What other place has this? Might we say from this passage, in the mind of Paul and by inspiration, this was powerful evidence that there is a God. If you look beyond that, there are some other things that might be noted. Of character is Hebrews 3, verses 5 and 6. In the heart of the New Testament, we find that statement that every house is builded by some man. It is a self-evident truth that a house doesn't build itself. Anything such as a wall, a house, a structure, a building, a skyscraper, a dam, it makes no difference. It had to have a designer. It had to have a builder. And yet as we look at earth and see the complexity and the intricacy and the complicated nature of its systems, isn't it foolhardy to say somehow this came into being without a designer, that it came into being without a God? I would submit that's nonsense of the highest order. It would be just as reasonable to say that this building somehow built itself, that a tornado swept through and somehow this building resulted therefrom. We've seen in Dotson's Branch lately what tornadoes do. They destroy things. They don't make order out of it. They cause destruction, not construction. And yet there are those in our world who supposedly as intellectuals will say, somehow this made itself. This world came into being and there was no God. That's nonsense. That's absolute nonsense. In fact, order... We notice again in Hebrews 3, every house is builded by some man, but he that builded all things is God. Thanks be unto God that there is a loving, powerful character, and as we recognize Him, we rightly attribute to Him these things He's made, and Paul did so in Acts 14. That audience to whom Paul preached, again, they were idolaters. They wanted to call Barnabas Jupiter and him Mercury. They worshipped all kinds of the Roman gods. But Paul said, did you notice the language in verse 15? Sirs, why do you do these things? Let me tell you about the God that made all of this. He hasn't left himself without witness. He's given us rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. There perhaps are even more things we ought to say in light of that. There are a number of verses that teach us that the things we've concluded so far are exactly the biblical truth. Romans 1 verse, 6 to, uh, Romans 1, verse 20, 
Paul said, For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The discussion of that verse is this. God has left evidences of His being all around us embedded in the reality of creation. And Paul says that those who ignore it have no excuse. They may in this life think in their intellectual wisdom that there's no God, but there's going to come a day they're going to stand in His presence and they're they're going to realize then the foolishness of their beliefs, the character of their disposition on earth. For all that that they thought could be explained by accident, at that time they'll realize was no accident. Not only is Romans 1 verse 20 in a statement of that point. Let's revisit Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. My family and I enjoy peering up into the sky on nice clear nights. Aren't the stars majestic? Don't they tell us that there is a vast universe in front of us? We are but a small part in it. God made every one of those stars. They may be millions and millions and millions of miles away, but He made every one of them. Every one of them is different. And the Old Testament even says God knows every one of them by name. Scientists can't even name anywhere near all of them. We haven't discovered all of them, but God knows every one of them. Knows them by name, knows where they are, knows their characteristics, knows their features. God made all of them. Beyond Psalm 19.1, we also notice in Revelation 4.11, as that closing book in the Bible is before us, the statement is therein made that you and I should rightly give God the credit for being the Creator. And if we don't, we are sorely in error. All those today who simply think that there's not enough evidence, where are their eyes? What do they not see? All of this about us is a testimony to the fact that there is a God. The listing before us in this particular place perhaps reminds us of one of the songs in our book that we sing from time to time. It is the song entitled, When We Behold the Wonders of Creation. When we behold the wonders of creation, the thought of that song brings us to realize that as we laud God and we praise Him, When we do so for His creation, it's a reminder He made it. He fashioned it and He upholds it. There's something else in this list, though, besides just the natural created order. What else testifies of God? Verse number 17 says, He did good. That may seem like such a simple observation, but yet by inspiration it's been recorded for us. Let's spend a few minutes and think about the fact that God did good. Although many things might be mentioned, the one that comes so wonderfully to my mind, and I suspect in light of this verse comes to all of us, is this book I'm holding. Doesn't the Scriptures themselves testify of how good this book is? It has been a light to lighten the woeful character of men. Do we not read in Psalm 119, verse 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Where would the human family be without the guidance offered by and set forth in the tremendous word of God? A few thoughts on that slide that bring us to this consideration is this. 
when it says that God did good, we do read in Luke 18 that He is the one and only ultimate good. For that reason, no wonder that that which He produces is good. This Bible is a very special book, isn't it? Though libraries of men contain many, many books written by men, none of them are like this one. The Holy Scriptures, you see, weren't merely written by a man. Second Peter 1, verses 20 and 21 remind us, No prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. God provided this book. It's true that He directed men to copy it down, but they weren't writing their thoughts, and they weren't writing their opinions, and they weren't writing their suggestions. They were writing the absolute commandments and revelations of the God of heaven. For that reason, this book is called Perfect in 1 Corinthians 13.10. That's a very special concept. If I were to write a book, it wouldn't be perfect. It would be filled with all the failures and weaknesses of my understanding and my wisdom. But this book is called perfect in 1 Corinthians 13. When that which is perfect is come, the very statement Paul made, he was referring to this book, the completed scriptures. These are perfect. They provide the fullness of the guide of life. When you and I rightly divide them, use the precepts to guide our lives, we are walking in the blessed way that's revealed as perfect. No wonder 2 Timothy 3 verses 16 and 17 put the icing on that thought like this. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. To what end? That the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. You and I then can stand fully equipped, thoroughly complete, when we order our lives by the nature of these wonderful scriptures. When you think about that attribute of God's goodness, many things might be said about it that tell us this book truly is that special degree of goodness. For instance, in it there are statements of future prediction. What man can do that? There are statements in the Old Testament that predicted minutely and exactly events that would transpire thousands of years into the future. They came to pass exactly as the writer said. That tells us no men could have written it. It had to be written by God, and so it was. This is a great thing that God has provided. Beyond that, you'll notice it also tells us that God has given us a book to which we can turn for the answers of the most critical nature in life. What happens when a person dies? What is heaven really like? What's hell really like? What is it that will be the nature when each of us are resurrected on that great resurrection morning? Those are all questions that we love to think about. Where are the answers? Right here. Not in any math book, physics book, chemistry book, psychology book, sociology book, botany book. Makes no difference. As worthwhile as those can be in their place, they are a poor comparison to this one because this one answers all those questions. Perhaps more carefully, what must I do to be saved? This book has that answer, doesn't it? 
If you and I wish to know what we must do to stand justified right before God, saints in His sight, this book has that answer. Oh, indeed, He did good. One of the ways is He gave us this book. It shall stand, we read in 1 Peter 1.25, The Word of God shall endure forever. It shall stand unto the end of time. I don't care how many atheists may rear their heads against it, how many agnostics may rear their venomous tongues and po try to poison and remove it. This book shall stand until the end of time. We need to then be acquainted with it, rightly divide it, use it in our lives, and help others also to appreciate its teachings. Perhaps in light of that, we come to the third element of the lesson today. Not only is the created order evidence for God, and not only is this book evidence for God, for nobody else could have written it. One more thing in this verse is this one. Verse 17 of Acts 14. Filling our hearts with food and gladness. That word gladness and that word hearts brings us to the third and final element in our listing today. What other grand evidence is there that there is a God? May I submit that it's none other than the Christ. What about Jesus? Is He also an evidence that there is a God? May we ask it this way. When you and I give thought to Jesus, was there a man that walked on this earth about 2,000 years ago named Jesus? Did He really exist? I'd be quick to say that around 20 years ago, there was a rather interesting movement called the, called the Jesus Seminar. It was the intent of that seminar to, in fact, in, in their mind, correctly look at the four gospel accounts. And as they did so, to make careful note of what did Jesus say and what did He not say. You may have in your lap right now a book that has in red certain verses in the New Testament. Those are supposedly the very words spoken by the Master. That Jesus seminar, I would be quick to tell you, removed the vast majority of those red verses and turned them into black. In their mind, as a result of their scholarly research, they really had Jesus saying but very, very little of the New Testament. In their mind, it's almost as if He never existed. Shame on them. Our Savior did exist. Not only does this book testify to it, but there are even non-biblical records. You can read Josephus. He says there was a Jesus. You can read many other Roman writers like Pliny and Eusebius and others. Even they agree there was a man named Jesus, without question, without a doubt. Many of them even make note he did miracles. He did things that no other man could do. I would submit that we ought to devote the last part of the lesson to thinking more carefully what does that say about an evidence for God. Might we begin in this rather innocent way? I would submit that even our calendar is a testimony to the fact He existed. This is the year 2012 A.D. What does the word A.D. stand for? That is the Latin word phrase, Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord. The very calendar is an evidence, the fact that there was a Jesus. The very calendar that we use and the way that we reckon dates is a basis upon His existence 
A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. But not only that, isn't it amazing that we can also say this? We each are asked to face this question. In Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13, our Savior came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi and He asked this question, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? They were quick to answer. Some say they are Jeremiah, some Elijah, some John the Baptist, some one of the prophets. But Jesus wasn't satisfied with those answers because He wanted them to consider it. And so in verse 15 He said, Whom say ye that I am? It is still the case that we each must answer that question in one way or another. Who do you, Randy Bybee, say that I am? He is either the Son of God or He is not. There is no middle ground. He is either the Messiah or He is not. He is either the Anointed One of God or He is not. If we believe that He is then all these statements of the New Testament must be exemplified in our lives or else we aren't dutiful servants. If we have the nerve to say He is not the Son of God, then we are no better than an infidel. We are, in fact, a very one that's remiss in His sight. There's overwhelming evidence that there was a Jesus and that He did exactly what He said He was. He confessed, didn't He, in John 14, Ye have seen me, Philip, you have seen the Father. Isn't that a telling passage? If you have seen me, you have seen God. He was God. He is evidence for God. When He went about doing miracles, was that not a testimony that He was from God? When He raised Lazarus from the dead, imagine you and I standing in a cemetery and a man walking up and saying, Lazarus, come forth! John 11, verses 40 and 41. And that man comes back from the dead. Would that not be overwhelming evidence that this was the Son of God? Who else could do that? And yet that was but one miracle He performed. He was God. And thus He serves as another evidence that there is a God. To say that there is a God reminds us that you and I are admonished to have the mind of Christ in us. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2.5. Colossians 1.27 reads, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Colossians 2, verse 10, ye are complete in Him. Galatians 4.19, until Christ be formed in you, I travail over you. As we come near the close of this lesson today, you and I can think there is a God, and thanks be unto God for that truth. What a mess this world would be. There wouldn't even be a world. What a mess our lives would be. But we have the order, the guidance, the truth presented by the statements of His existence. That God that we have identified this morning, that God who does exist... He is not some inanimate thing that just rests way off far in the universe. He is a God that loves you and me. That love is highlighted by the fact He sent His Son. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. Have you submitted your life to Him? He loves you so much that He allowed Christ to die on the cross for your sins and for mine. 
Have you become a Christian today? There would be no better day than April the 1st, 2012 as your spiritual birthday. If we could be of assistance to you, we would be honored to do that. Christ commands you to do this. You must believe that He is the Son of God. You must repent of your sins. You must confess His name as the anointed Son of God, and you must be baptized. All of that's commanded in the New Testament. If you have, in fact, become a Christian, but at this very moment you realize that you aren't faithful, there are things in your life that have caused problems and difficulties, and you have allowed your faith to wane. Why not come back to your first love today, Revelation 2.5? If we could assist you by praying with you and for you, it'd be our privilege, it'd be our honor. May we leave this place today even more convinced than ever that there is a God and use the verse in Acts 14 that Paul used back in the ancient long ago to help assure our minds of that truth. Today, if we could assist you in a public way in your response, would you not let that be known if you would while together we stand and while we sing?